God had an incredible love for Adam and Eve. That even after he had warned that if they partook of the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, God, in his generosity, put them outside the Garden of Eden and allowed them to live for many more years, albeit harder in so many ways. But it was still a huge sign of mercy from God. It was true their sin would cause their death, but still God gave generous grace in their continued life on the earth. God had an incredible love for Lot, that even though he chose to make his home in a wicked city full of wicked people who actively opposed the Lord, God still loved Lot. This city was so wicked that God came down to earth with two of his angels in order to rescue Lot and his family, to bring them out of the wicked place, and then to utterly destroy it by fire. God had an incredible compassion and love and mercy for Lot. God has a standard, and yet all have fallen short of that standard. Therefore, we all deserve death, but God has this incredible love, this incredible grace, this incredible mercy on all of mankind. One sin, while one sin deserves death. Look around. So many all around the earth are living out their days on earth. So many at the length of the average lifetimes in those areas, whether that be 60, 70, 80, 90 years. This alone is a huge sign of generosity on behalf of Almighty God. And then there is Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior. God's greatest sign of generosity to man that no longer would we be alone. No longer would we be without hope, unable to live up to the requirements of the law. No one could keep the law perfectly. So no longer would we be without hope. No longer would we be without a savior. God was generous. When he didn't have to be, God was generous. Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. To the Lord God, 
over all things, to the Lord God over all peoples and over all nations and over all lands, over all tribes and all languages and all races and all creeds. You alone are God. You alone exude grace. You alone exude mercy. And not just in small amount, but in great abundance. For those undeserving, you exude grace. Unto those undeserving, you exude mercy. You lavish it on your people. For those who take up the name of Christ and follow you, so imperfectly, but follow you, you show the great wealth of your generosity and your mercy. May we, your children, learn from you, God. May we follow you in faith and take up the attributes of our God and show generosity and show kindness with our wealth and with our time, with our hearts and with our minds so that we would, in this area, also take on the mindset of our God. And it is for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please open with me to Genesis 24. Genesis 24 starts with the faith of Abraham. Abraham has grown so close to God in his personal relationship that it starts with the faith of Abraham. And we read last week that it passes, his faith is adopted and it, it passes into the mind and into the heart of his servant, the oldest servant of his household, the head of his household, the servant unnamed, who goes on this journey commissioned by Abraham to find a wife for his son, Isaac, from the family of his people, from his kindred back in Mesopotamia. And the servant prays to the Lord. The servant arrives in Mesopotamia and he says, Scripture says in verse 11, the servant made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And the servant said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The servant is seeking God in faith. The servant is not relying on his own strength or his own wisdom or his own ability or his own intelligence or his own charisma or his even his own commission from Abraham. Now he is seeking God in prayer. 
throughout the Old Testament, throughout First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there are different kings leading Israel, and then when the kingdom divides, leading Israel, and then leading Judah. And the kings either rise or they fall based on whether they're seeking the Lord. If they're seeking the Lord, then God has grace and God has mercy on the people and on the king. And if they act, as scripture says, and do evil, then they are judged by the Lord of all things. They are not shown mercy in the same way because they are not seeking God. God's own chosen people were not seeking God, and therefore there is a consequence to that. There is a punishment for that because there is a punishment for sin. There is a punishment for wickedness. There is a punishment for lack of faith. But that is not what we see here from the servant in verses 11 through 14. So the servant comes to Mesopotamia. So the servant is seeking God. He is looking heavenward in faith, seeking God in faith, saying, God, if I'm going to have success, it is going to be because of you. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. This is all in his prayer. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. An incredible, we talked about this last week, an incredible request. This is a bold one, a bold prayer unto God and a bold request of any young woman who would come, who would be coming out to drink, to draw water from the well for her family. This is not just, may I have a cup of water for him. But the camels is an incredible request. Let her be the one whom you have appointed. He is seeking the Lord whom you, God, have appointed for your servant, Isaac. The servant is asking God in the covenant that God has with Abraham, even, not specifically that God has made a covenant with the servant, though in a way he has because God made a covenant with Abraham and with Sarah and with all of their household and under the covenant of circumcision, that would include the servant. But here the servant with a generous heart is asking for God to provide for the benefit of someone else. It's not even for the benefit of himself. Yes, it's for the benefit of himself in that he wants to be successful or you could say faithful to do what Abraham had asked him to do as Abraham was having faith in God for this provision. But really the servant is wanting and seeking God to provide for the benefit of God, God's relationship with Abraham and Isaac in the covenant for the purpose of the covenant and to honor Abraham who had commissioned the servant to go. By this I shall know 
verse 14. That you, God, have shown steadfast love to my master, meaning Abraham, who he was in covenant relationship with. There was a partnership in the covenant. There was a relationship, meaning two people, because a relationship is two people in the covenant. So while the servant is looking heavenward, while the servant is expecting God, he is asking a bold request of God, this bold request with regard to the camels. Never thought of this before. As I've studied this text, this is a bold request. Before he had finished speaking, verse 15, Behold, Rebekah, who is born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, if you do the math, if you chart it out, this would be his Isaac's second cousin came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Before he had finished speaking, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar. Look at that word, quickly. Let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. So she quickly, look at that word again, quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Back to verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, he was praying with the Lord. He was seeking God. Before he had finished speaking, sometimes God responds immediately to our request. It's rare, I would think. But keep your eyes open. Think about how God's relationship is with his children. Think about how God's relationship is with anyone on earth who is genuinely, authentically seeking him, not just praying to him, but seeking him in faith, saying, I cannot do this, let alone anything else on my own, unless God, you do it. Unless God, you give me the strength to do it. Because God, you supply the oxygen in my lungs every single second of my life. I'm not alive at this moment unless the grace of God. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. God, who is in heaven, is a loving Father. And for those who seek Him in faith, He wants to respond to you. Now, it may not be immediate. I think that it rarely is. But does God listen? Yes. Does God want to answer His children? Will He answer His children in His timing? Yes. And if you don't see it at the beginning, God is asking you to wait in patient faith in him. 
knowing that he is a loving father, knowing that he has the very best in store for his children, whether we think so at the time or not. Before he had finished speaking, Rebecca arrives at the well. This was of his kindred. This was someone of his kindred. He didn't know who this Rebecca was, of course. The narrative says exactly who she is here in verse 15. And he would soon know exactly who she is and that she was of the kindred of the family line of Abraham. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. I think in part the narrative here suggests that there was something physically in adoration in her adorning part of her dress or the way that she wore her hair or maybe veiled her face or something that signaled that she was a virgin or at least that she had not been married. Those two probably meaning the same thing in the world at this time. This along with the timing that she came to the well right at the time that he was praying. This motivates a servant to do what? To call out to her? He's a little distance away. Whether that was 20 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet, what have you? No, let's look at this. Verse 17, then the servant ran to meet her. Action. He's anticipating. He is eager and earnest to carry out the mission that is before him for the glory of God and the provision of the family. The servant ran out to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly, again, Let's look at this. And the words are important here. The adjectives are important here. The servant is eager to do that which God has called him to do. She is quick to do that which is in her mind and in her heart to do because this is what she loves. She loves to be generous. She loves to be hospitable. What can we equate this to? It's a little foreign in our culture today in America. In modern day America, it's not seen so much this way, perhaps as it should be seen, but this is the word love. What does it mean to love someone else? I would equate this to how do we love God? Obviously, God is our God. But God has called us to be loving, to be generous, to be kind, to think of others more than we think of ourselves, to think of God primarily more than we think of ourselves. And this encompasses and this involves and this gets to the depths of all the different areas of our life so that we are others focused, that we are God focused first, and then we are others focused primarily in our life. Jesus has called us in the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and 
teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This imperative is so that we would be focused on the things of God and loving other people for the things of God. Teaching them to have the value set of the things of God. Teaching them to have the mindset of the things of God. Teaching them to have the passions of the desires that move God's heart. That those would be the passions and the desires that move our heart and move their heart. Verse 17, the servant asks, How important is it to initiate? When we have either been given a mission specifically by someone that we honor and that we respect in this world, to carry that out, it takes initiative. To carry that out, it takes assertiveness. You can't go and do something unless you go and do something. And sometimes the biggest challenge is either opening your mouth or opening your mouth in assertiveness for things that are holy and righteous. Some people don't know how to control their tongue. Use it in a way that is holy and righteous. And because it is holy and righteous, don't hold back, don't shrink back, do not fear man, and do not fear the unknown, because if God has called you to do it, and it is for God's glory and God's purposes, then open your mouth. Don't do it in an assertive bad way. Do it in an assertive good way, in an assertive godly way for God to receive the glory. Because our God is bold, we can be bold. And the servant is bold. The servant runs to meet her, and then the servant asks. Also because the servant is following his prayer unto God. He has sought God first, and now he is seeking it in action, following that through. How does she respond in verse 18? She is generous. He asks, and she is generous. Drink, my Lord. My Lord, a sign, a, a common, small L, a sign of respect. At that time in that culture. We could say gentleman or something like that today. It's a sign of respect, mister, what have you. And she quickly lets down her jar upon her hand and gives him a drink. There is something in Rebecca that would even motivate her to do that. A simple drink. This is very telling. Far too many people in their culture at their time, I'm quite convinced, because especially in our culture at our time, selfishness is ubiquitous. Don't bother me. I don't have time for you. I don't know you. Therefore, I don't want to help you. 
I don't know if you really need help or you're just asking me or if you're bothering me, if you're trying to get something else from me. Therefore, I don't want to show you even a simple sign of generosity, a sign of kindness, a sign of anything. I don't have time for you. This seems to be the ubiquitous culture, this inherent selfishness, which is pride, which is opposition to God. And I'm not saying that you don't be smart about how you go about being generous to other people, but I am saying it's an about face in the mindset of it. When we are little, we are inherently, we, we inherently learn pride. I don't know how it comes about, but it does come about. And pride is at war with faith because faith requires submission to God. And pride is against that. Pride stands against faith. Pride stands against God. That's why we sin, because we turn our back on God and we're focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on the basest desires, the most selfish desires in ourselves. And that does not give glory to God any way around. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God has more grace for us. And Rebecca shows grace here. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand. She was focused. She was motivated. She wanted to be generous. She loved generosity. It was a value to her. It was a fruit of the spirit to her. It is within her. This is something good and something godly, and she loves it. It doesn't say she loves the pride of being generous. It says that she just loves being generous in a good way, in a godly way. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. She initiates. He didn't ask that. She initiate. That's how the servant had prayed earlier, a few verses earlier. He was looking for someone with abundant generosity, someone very unique. And he found her before he had finished speaking. And for those who thought, perhaps last week, perhaps this week, he thought she would only give the camels a small drink. She would give the camels something easy, something, you know, pour a jar or two into the trough. Rebecca's own words make it clear. Let's look at verse 19 again. I spoke last week about how camels, depending on the species, depending on the environment, even in the desert, because they're not always around water, as we all know about camels, and they can actually go for up to seven days without water source. Therefore, they can drink up to 55 gallons of water each at any time, given their thirst. He had 10 camels with him. What does it say? When she had finished giving the servant a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. If a man or woman is very thirsty and they have been in the desert, how much could they drink at one time? 
Well, not even a gallon. Not at one time. Until they had finished drinking. So whether that was 20 gallons each camel, which would be completely logical, or it was much more than that given their thirst, she had an incredible heart of generosity. This was a big offer for her to make to a stranger who she had just met at a well in her town. Verse 20, so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough. It said the servant ran earlier. Now it says she ran again to the well to draw water. She wasn't just at the well and the trough was right there. So not only is she doing many, many, many repetitions of her jar into the well or the spring, what have you, if it's on the ground, we have two different terminologies here in this text in Genesis 24. It says well, and then it says spring. Regardless, if there's a lot of effort to get the jar out of a well each repetition, and then she runs to the trough to lower it. Look at her earnestness. This is a sign of faith. This is a sign that she has so much love that is spilling over in her life for the benefit of other people. The love means taking care of the basic provisions of other people in her life, including strangers, when appropriate. Here it was appropriate. Here, it was God-ordained. But it also takes a person who is motivated by the things of God to be accompaniment to the things of God in the moment God is doing work. God can use anyone at any time, and God has miraculous purposes, and God is omnipotent, and he's all-powerful, and he's sovereign, and he can even move people. He can even move people who are not of faith to say and do the actions because he is over all rulers of all nations of the earth, even those who don't profess faith at any given time. But I get the impression she was already this way. because she was not out for herself in her life. She didn't see this life as an opportunity to go as far as she could in business, to make as much money as she could just by working on her own time, not to help other people. That was not her motivation. She was not so selfish just to do things for her own family to the neglect of other people in her life or to the spirit, or to the motivations of generosity in her life for the benefit, for the welfare of other people. No. She wanted to show love to other people. There is a testimony when we embrace this mindset of our God, of Jesus Christ. Even in part here in the Great Commission, Go, therefore. Go, therefore. What's the first word there? It requires action. Like the servant went. He go. He, that's not a, that's not proper grammar, but he embraced it. He embraced the call to go. Go. 500 miles or whatever it was. 
bringing 10 camels across a large stretch of desert and wilderness. Go. When God called Abram out from Ur, he went with his father Terah to Haran in Mesopotamia. And then he went from there after Terah died to Canaan. He didn't even know specifically where God was calling him first. God said, go from your people and from your kindred to a land that I will show you. And Abram went. And God changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham's faith had grown to a point where now he was living his life continuously in faith for the glory of God and in faithfulness to the covenant. In the book of James, James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to the church. And in chapter 4, starting in verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. It's not a perfect correlation to the faith of the servant here. But the servant prays to God. He seeks God first. And then he, and then he asks the young woman at the well. In James 4, 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Do not seek the Lord. It says, you ask and then you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know the friendship with the world is enmity toward God or hatred toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friend of the world there means Loving the things of the world, loving the selfishness and the sinfulness of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Folks, God is a loving Father. He wants to love and to provide an answer for his children who ask him, who seek him. We are in need of God for every single thing in our lives. There is nothing in your life that you do not have because God has given it to you. God has given you all things. If you have any intelligence, any wisdom, any education, any abilities, any skills, any languages, God has given that to you. If you have any strength, physical, mental, emotional, any stability, any abilities, God has given that to you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So seek God. So ask God. You do not have because you do not ask. But do not ask God with wrong motives. Ask him with the right motives. Ask him in faith. Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now that's not a blanket statement, of course, and what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 is ask for that which you need for life. But like it says in James 4, do not ask with wrong motives so that you can spend on your selfish desires, so that you can spend on sinful desires. But ask for the glory of God. Ask for holy and righteous purposes, because that is a prayer that God wants to answer. Because that is a prayer that God will answer for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks him, finds him. And to the one who knocks on the door that God is waiting behind, it will be opened. But he must ask in faith. Jesus also said in Luke 6, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do these things, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Our God has taught us a completely countercultural way to live and to think and to be motivated in our hearts. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Is drawing the correlation, this is even how selfish people, pagans in the world, act to each other. Think about when you go to the bank or when you do a financial transaction, he says even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But now he's correlating it to how we treat other people in general. Love your enemies and do good. And even lend expecting nothing in return. There is, he is eroding the prideful mindset that we have all adopted since we were toddlers. That we deserve the things that we have, we do not. God alone has given us abundant grace and abundant mercy. We are only alive at the second because of his good pleasure. And when his pleasure for our individual lives here on earth is over, our life will end on earth and we will die physically because God is in control of life and death. So he says, live counterculturally, love your enemies. Think of the testimony that is to the world who only knows selfish people, backbiting, dividing, deriding, complaining, critical, sadness, hurt, depression, anger, lust, all of these things. This is how the world operates. He is saying, Jesus is saying, if you desire to be, instead of prideful, sinful, selfish people, if you want to step out of that, 
Here's the offer to become sons of the Most High, the God who is in control of all things. How do they act? Love their enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. Because God is kind to the ungrateful and even to the evil. He is saying to people who are consumed with selfish pride, God still shows great kindness. In the sun that shines on them each day, in food and water, in clothing and provision. Again, people only have anything that they have because of God. God is sovereign over all people at all times. And when a lawyer asked Jesus a question in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35, saying, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Everything. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus sums it all up here. That the focus and the desire of your life is to worship God. To make much of God. That when the option on the table is to make much of God or to make much of myself or make much of my spouse, or make much of my children, or make much of my job. Jesus says, make much of God. That God would be the only God in your life. That yourself would not also be a God. That your spouse would not be a God. That you would not treat them as such, but that you would treat God as God, who he is. That we would not put attributes onto God, like a sticker, and affix a different label onto God, but only, rather, read who he says he is in the Bible and believe and accept who he says he is. Therefore, if there's a part of the Bible that we read and then individually that we disagree with, Rather than attributing to God something not of God or something not in the Bible or contorting the word to say something that we selfishly want to place onto the Bible, no. God calls us to humility. We must then step back, kneel before him, and say, God, I humble my selfish thoughts And I set those aside and I believe your word, even if I don't fully understand it. Because it takes faith. And God will not share his throne. So it is from that first commandment that Jesus sums up to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, to love him first that then we have the heart, we attempt to have the heart, we pursue to have the heart, like Rebecca, to love your neighbor as yourself. If she was thirsty, if it was her family, she was already doing that for herself and her family. You would go out to the well because you need to get basic living 
needs met every day. She's drawing water from the well for herself and for her family. And then if she had 10 camels that she needed to water because they were of her household and her responsibility, she would draw water from the well continuously, arduously, with physical effort and time of her own time because it would be her responsibility. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. She sees this as an opportunity, and she doesn't do it grudgingly. She doesn't do it slowly. She doesn't drag her feet while she's walking from the well to the trough. She is, one, generous, and then, two, she's earnest. She pulls everything together in her body, and like Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind, in another scripture, you read it, and your strength she is doing it all together. It is coalesced in what her priority is. Mind, speech, body, and earnestness, which is her passion. She's running. She is lowering the jar quickly. She wants to do this because she loves generosity. She wants to do this because there is a motivation other than selfishness, because there is a mindset other than selfishness, because there is a heart motivation that is absolutely different and unique. And this is what God calls us to do. God calls us to have this eager first commandment, second commandment, mindset, passion, and priority. Verse 21, the man, the servant, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I find that with a little bit of humor because he sees not only what he had just prayed and asked the Lord for, and she's fulfilling it completely, but she does it with earnestness and passion. How often in this life do you encounter someone that genuinely has an earnestness and a passion? It is rare, but it shouldn't be. Our earnestness for God should be ever-present. Our passion for God should be growing and growing and growing as we embrace the relationship that God has called us to be in with Him. And your passion will grow, and inevitably, it will overflow into other areas of your life. It will overflow into your relationship with your spouse. It will overflow into your relationship with your siblings. It will overflow into your relationship with your children, with your coworkers, with your friends. It's going to overflow. And then the Great Commission from Jesus in Matthew 28 will be genuine, and it'll be natural because these are the passions and the priorities of your heart. To give of your time, give of your money, give of your mind, your thoughts, and give of your physical effort for God's glory and for the benefit of other people. 
Let's pray. Wonderful, holy God. Sometimes it seems like you are so far away from living under the storm clouds here that we do in our cities and in our towns and our social circles, in the trials and the temptations of life. So far away because you are completely opposite in holiness from the things of sin and the things that wear us down. But it is not that you have not walked these same roads, not in sin, but in trial, not in sin, but in the valleys, not in sin, but you have walked in the hardships of life, Jesus. And you know our humanness, you know our struggles, you know our pain, you know our suffering. God, you are not far away from us. May your people hold close to you and press into you. May we press ever deeper into your word. May we press ever deeper into prayer so that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind for the glory of God and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 24.